Episode 71, Hey Love Podcast. I think there's a good chance it's natural, it's nature, that some of us don't have those natural impulses to know how to start the conversation or have that relationship. Some of it's nurture, some, you know, we grow up learning defense mechanisms or ways of, of surviving and that don't include hanging out with a gaggle of girls. Welcome to Hey Love, engaging you, the reflective woman, in soul care, spirituality, and social spaces through the grid of God's grace. Here, it's all about relationships. Hey Love, welcome back. In a few minutes, a sought-after singer-songwriter friend of mine from the 90s, which many would say was the heyday of Christian music, she's going to join us. Christine Dente is the chick singer half of the duo known as Out of the Gray. <laughs> she's also a longtime friend of mine and the one who introduced me to recovery. After a lengthy conversation at a party one night a few years ago, she invited me to a meeting. She was so great about it. It wasn't shaming at all, like, you need help, Carthy. It was just, hey, I go to these meetings, and after hearing some of your story, I think you'd really get a lot out of this program. So I went, and I've never looked back. So you're going to get to meet Christine in just a few minutes, but first I want to talk to you about some of the responses I've gotten about an earlier episode. A couple of weeks ago, you heard from my friend Stephanie Rainey, and in the commentary, I can't remember if it was before her interview or afterwards, it was episode 69, somewhere in that episode, I mentioned that I was very intentional with Stephanie, and from what I gather, you would like to know more about that, how that all went down, what that looked like. Also, I heard from a few of you who said, I don't have a friend like that. I don't even know how to pursue a friend like that. So we're going to expound on that a little bit today, and then we'll get to my interview with Christine, who you'll just love. My friendship with Steph. First of all, like I told you, I've been hurt before too, just like you have. But once I got to know Stephanie, I decided, okay, this is the kind of friend that I really want in my life. She is worth the risk that it would require. My little flicker of hope of having a real friend finally started to outweigh the fear of being hurt again or rejected. We really hit it off from the beginning, Steph and I. We had a couple of great conversations, then we started hanging out. First in groups, then, you know, just the two of us. And we both had lots going on. So it wasn't like a regular weekly thing. But anytime we could get together, we we would grab it. And then while her husband was studying to be a counselor out at Dan Ellender School in Washington State, this was back in 2006. Um, we'd already been friends for about seven years by then. So I flew out to the great Northwest to spend a few days with her. And while we were walking through this beautiful park in Seattle, there on a log, sitting in just a few feet from the Pacific Ocean, I said to her, Steph, I know this might sound a little forward, but I really want to commit to be your friend, like a real friend. So what do you think? And a big smile swept across her face. She threw her arms up in the air and yelled, yes, a friend. And she let out one of her signature laughs, which incidentally, if you didn't get to hear Stephanie Rainey's laugh a couple of weeks ago, it's worth listening to that episode just so you can hear it. 
<laughs> we didn't make a blood pact or anything that crazy. We just sort of pledged to each other that we would be friends. That's it. And we've kept it really simple. Even though it feels a little awkward to pledge faithfulness and friendship as adults, you know, we do that as kids, but it's great because Steph and I, we, we have this understanding. We sort of made this deal. And having a friendship like this where there's intentionality, that feels really, it makes it a really safe place for me. But there's no sense of obligation or possessiveness or controlling the other person. We know that we truly have have the other person's best interest at heart. I have no doubt Stephanie wants God's absolute best for me. And it feels like such a gift. It's a breath of fresh, cool mountain air. We sort of updated our pledge to each other recently. It was loosely based on Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 about let's not stop meeting together so we can continue to spur one another on in love and good deeds till the day that Christ comes back to take us all home. In other words, let's stay friends for a long, long time. Let's do life together. On that phone conversation two weeks ago, we decided that when we do have a major conflict, which we most likely will because last time we checked, we were both human, (laughs) but we decided that when an issue does come up, we will do what we can to work it out. Stephanie said to me on the phone that day, if she and I ever do have a breakup, she will be thankful for the 20-year-long friendship we did have. And I totally agree with her, but I mean, I I will always be thankful, but I really do believe that if and when a, a big conflict happens, in the end, it might make us even better friends because I already sense repentance in her now, and she does in me too when we have, you know, little disagreements here and there that friends always have. Steph is that kind of friend. We can go weeks without seeing each other or talking to each other and then pick up right where we left off. Do you have a comrade like this? Oh, girl, I hope you do. Someone who is to you what King David said of his friend Jonathan. Someone who's closer than a brother. Someone like Jonathan's armor bearer who said to Jonathan, I am with you all the way, heart and soul. In today's terms, it would be something like, I got your back, sister. If you don't have a friend like that, I have a couple of suggestions for you at the end of this episode. So stay tuned for the commentary after the interview. And let's get on with it. Christine Dente and I discuss how hard it was, and sometimes still is for us, to initiate friendships. She talks about struggling to find the easy laugh that seemed to come so naturally for the other girls as she was growing up. She actually lived in a trailer park, and she went on to be one of the most popular girls in school and didn't realize that there was dysfunction, let alone trauma, in her past until she heard the hard truth from some courageous college friends. Then, after she and her husband Scott graduated from Berkeley School of Music and moved down to Nashville, they became Out of the Gray, one of my favorite groups ever, and she was the most recognized voice in town for years. Every time I turned on the radio, this is back in the 90s, or put in a new CD, there was Christine. She was singing background vocals for everybody at the time. Now, she and Scott, who's like a little brother to me, The two of them have three grown kids, and I tell you, all five of them have this mutual respect for each other. It's like nothing I've ever seen. 
In her book Lifelines, which you really must read, Christine describes a conversation she was having with her then 20-something-year-old son where they were sitting across from each other face-to-face, knee-to-knee, cross-legged in the grass. I admire this woman so much for the way she has parented her children and continues to encourage them and build them up. I was taking notes listening to her. Gets me a little emotional hearing her talk about her kids the way she does. It's really sweet. She gets a little weepy a couple of times, too. This woman feels so deeply. She has bravely embraced her sorrow, and now she is reaping the joy that comes from doing that deep heart work. We'll refer to her books, Lifelines and The Singer and the Songwriter. I'm going to link to both of those as well as some of my favorite Out of the Grey tunes. A lot of these songs were recorded in the 90s, but they were so ahead of their time. I think you're going to love these songs. Christine and I start out talking about some of the things that matter most, family, faith, and music. Here's my friend, Christine Dente. And we I remember the first time I heard Out of the Gray. It was at Christ Community Church. 1989, maybe? He is not signed. Yeah, that was the first record in 91. We were all like, what just happened? <laughs> I mean, nobody could get over that. That was It was just such a fresh thing. And mm-hmm. the two of you together and your dynamics and the way you'd look at each other. <laughs> just I remember it was like yesterday. It was amazing. Well, when you burst on the scene. <laughs> I'll never forget it. Oh. <laughs> I'm just remembering probably we were fighting that day or he was playing it too fast or I couldn't hear myself. Yeah, and your loving looks were probably, (laughs) slow down. Exactly. (laughs) So you mentioned the Enneagram in your book. Tell me where you are on the Enneagram. I'm a one, the reformer, the idealist, the Ah. list maker. That's my own name, the list maker. Ah. The uh, high expectation Interesting. Yeah, do everything right person. And so, did you marry another? No. No, not at all. He's a two, which is the helper Helper. or the caretaker. So it's it's a big mismatch. (laughs) Headed for disaster from day one. (laughs) That's great. And you guys have lasted 30 years against all odds. Against all odds. Isn't that amazing? When we discovered the Enneagram, probably... Almost 10 years ago now, it was huge. It's a great tool. I know I didn't like the name of it. I was like, Enneagram? That sounds uh-huh. kind of like witchcraft. New Agey. Uh-huh. New Agey. But it's definitely, it's just a tool that, that many people have found to be helpful in understanding yeah. ourselves and each other. And yeah. Scott and I, on our 20th anniversary, we did a little retreat and we read to each other our mm. Enneagram descriptions. <gasps> nice. And it was idea. really freeing to just know that's... That thing you're doing is not about me. Mm, it's about you. So good. And that you can understand me now and not take it personally. <laughs> oh, that's so good. It's good stuff. We felt the same way when we did a family life weekend to remember. They did DISC personality tests. Yes. And we saw, Christine, we were off the charts in opposite directions in every category. Off oh, no. the charts. It was <laughs> unbelievable. So... 
it was complete, like you're saying, it's so validating to us. We're like, no wonder we want to kill each other all yeah. the time. Mm-hmm. It just made sense and helped us to understand and forgive each other in a whole new way. So I would highly recommend doing a test like that too. I know I've done the Enneagram. I can never remember what I am. I think I'm a two, but I'm not sure. You are definitely a two. Really? You yes. know? I, when I heard you talking about something earlier, I said, oh, she's a two. <gasps> really? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I wonder what Blair is. I would like for him to take that test. You should make him take that test. <laughs> that's the reformer <laughs> that's right. you should make him take that test. <laughs> oh, I love it. You said a few times you saw the hand of God all through your story, even through the suffering and the trauma. Can you name one, one place in particular? Yeah, that's why I, I call it the book Lifelines, because mm. it's, it's being able to trace God's hand in my journey. Yeah. And for me to be able to write my own medicine with my songs, you know, I've been working things out through songwriting for so many years. Mm-hmm. Um, just to realize, for example, in my home when we were very young, occasionally my dad would have parties and people would come over and it was, you know, all kinds of people that shouldn't have been in the house. Mm. And there was just this, I think, this hedge of protection around Good. my sister and, and brother and me that. You know, weird stuff, weirder stuff didn't happen that could have. You know, other people have terrible stories. Ah, um, you were spared. Yeah, I feel like I was spared a lot. I've, I'm already screwed up enough. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit more and I would be off the deep end. But, mm. um, but also the Lord allowing the suffering mm. has given me the kind of compassion that has spoken to people. Mm. Yeah, your sensitivity is from another world. Your compassion and mercy, it's true. One of the uh, traits of uh, Enneagram One, supposedly, is that um, I always thought I was a cerebral person, Mm -hmm. very much a thinker, and that I would act on things that I thought about. But truly, I'm looking for justifications for things that I feel in my gut. Mm. So I mentioned earlier about the good theology of my my songs, but um, what it really is is a passion mm. for the Lord. And mm. to be able to put that passion to words is to try to find the right theology that yeah. makes sense of the passion I feel. Yeah. So it's kind of the opposite direction. Yeah, you're coming at it from the back door. Yeah, and so now in my 50s, Mm. I'm kind of in a deconstruction phase of Mm. theology uh, because I think good theology can take the place of a good relationship with Mm. the Lord and compassion for people. It can become the thing itself instead of an openness to learning. an idol. Yeah, it can become an idol. And I'm learning this from my kids because my kids... Try as I might, I didn't want them to be church kids. I wanted them to just know Jesus. Mm. But they were in the church, and they, they got a lot of negatives from being raised in the church, plus their own issues. I tell my kids all the time, I said, okay, I'll take the blame for some of your crap, <laughs> but that that right there, that's you. That's all you. Good. <laughs> you got to own that one. That's where well, I draw the line. That's where I draw the line. <laughs> but I love that. They aren't trying to grandfather in their faith, so to speak. They yeah. are all three wrestling with making their relationship with the Lord their own. Mm, and it's good. not always a good look sometimes. It looks messy and it cr- makes me cringe a little bit. But mm. in their deconstruction of faith, 
to find the heart of it, the truth of it. I, I've had to do it too. Wow. And it's so uncomfortable mm. and it's so right. Mm. It's, it's where I need to go and I need to be open and a learner mm. at all points in my life. And now that I'm not teaching my kids, they have a lot to teach me. Wow. That's awesome. Well, that answers another question that I have about you have such an exceptional way of relating to your kids. You know, I mean, the fact that they sit on the grass and talk with you face to face, sitting crisscross applesauce, and I mean, in their 20s, that's unheard of. Yeah, they're all in their 20s now. But you sound like you're a student, you know, learning from them. And so I think that humility, that draws people, and they, they see that, and they feel like they can tell you anything. I mean... I think that's how we were. It's Scott awesome. and I were, you know, as they were really young and got older, we we wanted to be parents that, you know, helped our kids think for themselves, not just tell them what to think. Mm. And we, we did share a lot of things. Like, Julian calls it dentanalyzing. I think we analyzed so everything. Cute. So oh. we're the dentanalyzers. And so, <laughs> you know, we have this family thread going on text messages and, you know, mm. just the same things come back around and it's so funny, wow. some of the things that we come up with. But in overall, I think it has been a good thing that we've talked a lot in our family. Mm, that's neat. Maybe sometimes too much analyzing, but oh, in general, the conversation it. has kept going. Yeah. I think it's exceptional. It's, I, I think you have a real gift there. It's very rare. And you enjoy taking road trips together and all kinds of stuff. It's, it's really good. Yeah, well, we had to take road trips together when we were on the road. <laughs> they got used to it real quick. They loved it. They, awesome. they got to watch SpongeBob and drink soda. and I was totally out of control. <sighs> and then you'd have a big broccoli party when you got home. That's right, broccoli party. <laughs> to make up for it. <laughs> to make up so for the bad cute. road food. <laughs> I remember our friend Tammy Wolin said one time, you guys all had pizza together, and she said, Christine said, okay, I'll, I'll order the pizza and steam the broccoli. <laughs> kind of went hand in hand with the pizza. You know, she was just as bad as I was. Uh, Tammy was. She always made sure there were vegetables around. She's so good at that. You know what's I know. funny? I, I have oftentimes people will come up to me and they'll say, oh, you're eating a cookie? <laughs> and I'll say, how did that, what is my reputation here? <laughs> and how did you ever hear it? And so, unfortunately, you know, <laughs> To talk about things like health, natural health, you know, I always wanted to eat naturally and, and, and well, people assume that I do it myself. <laughs> Did you ever the, have that situation? That's the trick. You, you can do know it. one thing, but can you actually practice oh, it? Oh, that's know. really funny. <laughs> Tell me what you do now, Christine, for play. Do you have a hobby? Play is tough for me. Really? I have lists. Mm. It's hard to play when there's things left on the list. Which, of course, there's always something on the list to do. I remember you used to do scrapbooking. Yeah, I did. I don't do that anymore. You don't do that? No, but when my kids got of, of an age when they were taking all the photos and kind of keeping track of what was going on in the family. And then Instagram came along. It's like, yeah. what's the point? There's no need. Oh, shoot. <laughs> Play for me is taking the dogs to the park or whatever. That's my a good one. You know, when my kids drop... Uh, what they're doing and want to hang out with me, I will drop what I'm doing. Oh, but um, my favorite thing is sitting outside in my 
my back patio, my backyard is very secluded. Yes. And I've learned so much about birds and the movements and the songs of birds. Wow. Uh, someday I'm going to be a bird watcher and go on those <laughs> adventures, you know, where you go into the deep so Amazonian jungles and find the rare bird that no one's ever seen. <laughs> Maybe you could do the one at Radnor Lake first. <laughs> I should start you know, there, right? Have, yes, it's right in your backyard. But I never want to leave my backyard, literally. Oh, it's so cute. <laughs> yeah, that would be a fun little expedition yeah you know and they have all these little rangers in their cute uniforms telling you all about the birds have you done it no oh i think i would go crazy i think that would be really boring <laughs> i'm also afraid that i know more oh <laughs> yes so because i I've, i can I've see that. studied books like i like to do a lot on my own i learn a uh-huh. lot on my own uh-huh. and so it's so risky for me like i'm That's very transactional funny. and so and efficient. Uh-huh. This is this. I'm confessing here. Efficiency <laughs> yes, I love and it. having transactional relationships really get in my way sometimes mm. of just living and being spontaneous. Mm. So when I die, by the time I die, I hope people will say of me. Yes. By the way, this will never happen. She was so lighthearted. She was so spontaneous. <laughs> Those are the last two traits that, oh. at this point in my life. What do you think they will really say <laughs> if you don't think that's well? If I ever believe my press, my fan fans, mm-hmm. I have kept some of my old fan letters, uh, our Aww. music, and the fact that I responded to a lot of people's letters have impacted people. Yes, and I'm shocked Aww. and humbled again and again to think that little song that I should have worked harder on the second verse Aww. really made a difference to you and. Wow, and so it's it's humbling and it's awesome that mm. I, I get I got to be so much bigger than mm. who I really am. Our music got to have much more impact than it could have. And do you have one that was written about more than any other that you know of? Well, that's a good question. Letters? No, they they were on the gamut. Some of them are the the tucked away little number tens on the CDs that people really resonate wow. with. And sometimes they're the ones that were the radio singles that I don't love as much as some uh-huh. of my other song children. <laughs> do you have, I know it's terrible to ask this, but do you have a favorite <laughs> song child? Let's see, one of my favorite song childs um, for the, just the, the message and how it all came through with the images is, is called Come Clean. It's from our scene side record and it just, it's, it's rocking. That, mm. that record is our most rocking record. I got to sing my heart out, thanks to Brown Bannister. So fun. Having a lot of faith in my voice. But um, Come Clean and um, Constant on that record, that's another favorite of mine. And Winter Sun. Mm. I love imagery. I, I wrote this book called The Singer and the Songwriter, and it's, yep. it's, it's built on me coaching my songwriting students. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I always have encouraged my songwriting students to do is find a central uh, image for your song mm. that you can build your lyric around so that people can view, picture it. It's like good art. You can picture it instead of having to explain it with um, ah, that's good. boring words. Like I, I talk about idea words versus picture words. Oh, so an idea that. word might be trust. Okay. For example, trust is a, an idea word, but you can't really picture trust when you say that to a person. Yeah. But if so you, you say, bring it down, put your hand out to the the tall person beside you, like mm. the little child that, that just puts their hand into their parents. 
you know, that's a picture of trust. Nice. Everybody can picture that. So in songwriting, I always encourage people to find a good image like that that cuts through 10 million words and says that's it all. That's great. So helpful to me, even in writing, you know, titles for my podcast episodes. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. You said um, it's harder. it was always harder for you to cultivate relationships with women. Have you heard that American women are, statistically it's proven, empirical evidence proves that American women are the loneliest in the world? I did not know that. Is that crazy? So I wonder if you would consider my listener who might have a similar issue with approaching women. And we have a few years on my average listener. So what would you say to the one who does struggle with female relationships? How do you approach someone? What, what would you suggest? Well, first of all, I will say that I think there's a good chance it's natural, it's nature, that some of us don't have those natural impulses to know how to start the conversation or mm-hmm. have that relationship. Some of it's nurture. Some, you know, we grow up learning defense mechanisms or ways of, of surviving mm-hmm. and that don't include hanging out with a gaggle of girls. Yeah. Um, I know that my youngest daughter, Chloe, is a lot like me, and mm. she hasn't suffered the trauma, mm. and yet she's, you know, I think some of our brains are different. We function differently in how we can converse. Like, easy repartee is not easy for some people, mm-hmm. and for me. I don't know if that's your experience. Oh, yeah, totally. I just clam up. Yeah, and there's a certain frozen. flow to a conversation. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm very much get to the point, kind of. I would love it if every conversation were like a text these days. <laughs> no one says hi first. No one texts in and say how you're doing, and then get to your point. Like, just go ahead and point. say it. <laughs> so, yeah, I never good. felt very good at the first steps of conversation. Hmm. And so I would encourage people just to, you know, first of all, trust yourself. You, you, you probably do have a different Something. way of, you know, conversing. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, and this is what I tell my students, my voice and um, performance students, is you've got to act. You've got mm-hmm. to be an actress. You've got to put on the thing that you want. And sometimes then you can step into that role and that role will become you. And that's not deceptive. I don't feel it's deceptive. That's like, you know, there's a, a Bible verse that says, put on the Lord's joy. You know, you can you put it on like a cloak and then you start to flesh it out. Exactly. You might feel it yes. after you believe it. Right. Yeah, you grow into it or you mm-hmm. are transformed by acknowledging where you, you step into that direction mm-hmm. and the transformation happens after the step of faith. Yeah. So maybe it's a step of faith to engage in a risky conversation. Risky. Good. That wouldn't be risky to many people, but to people like us, it, it just feels like a huge risk. <laughs> it is. A line you have in your book, I love the way you worded things, first of all, but you said something about a hope that bubbles up in spite of trauma, in in spite of pain. Where do you get this hope? Well, that's the gift of God. That's totally the gift of God to have something outside of myself that I can't conjure up and I can look at it or feel it and say, okay, that's a gift, and I, I can give thanks and trust that from that impulse I can move forward to the next step 
because I can remember that God has given me something way beyond myself. Mm. I mean, I look back when I first went to the Good News Bible Club and saw the, you know, the felt figures, the stories <laughs> of Jesus and the disciples, and yes. I just knew it was true. Wow. And I didn't have a transformative sense of I need to be saved from anything at that point. I mm. just began to follow Jesus. It's like, why wouldn't I? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and How that's never changed. You? I was probably, I don't know, seven, seven or eight. Of course, I I couldn't apply that. I didn't go to church or really know what it meant to be following Jesus. Mm. But occasionally my grandparents would take us to church, and we went to churches when we performed our, our um, high school choir songs, and mm. I loved going to Just those churches being, and being, ah. yeah. And then my sister and I went to a Christian camp. Thank God for Christians with their outreach. (laughs) Vacation Bible school. Yeah. That was a big part, too. That's great. Yeah. So you were at the camp when you were like 11 or 12 with Mm -hmm. your sister. And we threw our sticks in the fire and said, yes, we're following Jesus. And I don't think at that point I still had any sense of need for grace. Mm. I just... I must have. I mean, deep down, I knew I needed Jesus. And so did my sister. Then my mom and brother came to pick us up. And I, this is one memory that is very distinct that I remember they pulled up in the car and I said to myself, Oh, they don't know. They don't know. I can't believe in, I'm not going to go radical with this. It did, I don't think it occurred to me to tell them. <laughs> <laughs> so I went the opposite direction. I said, mm, I'm going to shut that door for a while. So did you ever end up talking to your mom about it or your brother? I know I did. I mean, in high school, I, I took my, I asked my mom to go to church with me, and this was a very charismatic church, where there was singing in <laughs> tongues and that kind of thing. Oh wow! Not something that you take a, a you know, a non-believer to necessarily. <laughs> so, being the Holy Spirit myself, I was nudging her with my elbow during the altar call. <laughs> oh, wow! <laughs> like she was already scared stiff. What the heck is going on here? And here I am urging her to go up. To the That's altar. Hilarious. So, no, she didn't feel the call of the spirit in that church. <laughs> the real spirit. <laughs> she does go to Aww. church now, but she's not a very she's not verbose about her faith. But wow. she has been our biggest out of the gray fan Aww. since 1991, and has loved all the music we've written and listened to it over and over again. So, so great. She's got some good theology going. <laughs> Christine, tell us about your childhood constants. <laughs> My childhood constants. <laughs> like Spooky the cat. Yeah, Spooky, and sadly, his name was Spooky. <laughs> Spooky? We didn't even know how to say his name Because right. you're from Lancaster. Right, from Lancaster. <laughs> Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I love it. You can't it. say Lancaster instead of Lancaster. It's Lancaster. not Lancaster. If you say Lancaster, we you know you're from out of town. town. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So Spooky was my, he was a Siamese cat. I'd had him since he was a kitten, and he was, he was my baby just mm. because growing up, the animals were the, what was safe for me. My pets were my thing. And you said that they were like your signposts and symbols of life. Yeah, I've looked back and I realized, not just for me, but for so many people, the family pet, the dog, oh, the yeah. cat is more than just... 
Oh, yeah. It's definitely more than some of its parts. And to have a dog and how the dog, the arc of the dog's life kind of matches the arc of the family's life in some parts mm-hmm. of their story. You know, when the dog dies, something else seems to be going on in the family. And then You're right. Sometimes a new dog is brought in to bring the new part of life. And mm-hmm. anyway, that's how it was for me and my, my brother and sister and the dogs and the cats. And oh, that's so great. I don't know how I would have ever made it without my dogs through junior and high school. I mean, and, and I was so allergic even back then. I know every time I'm at your house, um, I, <laughs> you're so kind to put the dog in the other room and I always feel so bad. I, I hate for people to think that I don't like them, but um, well, I, I love think animals. we forget too. I, I try to remember to vacuum when I know you're coming. You're in, so. <laughs> and I feel bad, but um, you know, when I was a kid, I just took allergy shots every week mm. and didn't think twice. But when I'm around someone else's dogs and cats, I, I think back and go, oh, my goodness, I'm depriving my children. Such a bummer. And I remember when you had a cat named Axie. Axie. <laughs> when I first met you, you had Axie. That's funny you remember that. Isn't that hilarious? Yes, Axie. Well, how could I forget? Because with your last name, it was just Accidente, and too she, funny. She was one of those, you know, spontaneous, <laughs> don't think, don't put your brain into motion, just buy the little cat in the pet store and yeah but she left us she got tired of us we were on the road at that point a lot had people coming in to take care of the cats and she decided she'd had enough and she just just took off yeah oh that's too bad okay you talked about in chapter 17 of your book you mentioned in elementary school and junior high that you couldn't find your way in and i wonder did you ever break out of that in that stage of life, or did it take you a long time? I think it took me a long time to try to figure out why are they laughing? I don't mm. get it. I couldn't find the easy laugh that mm. girls seem to have. Yeah. Even now, it, it makes me look emotional. Think about it. Mm. I think I learned to become an actor, actress at some point, where I could at least put on the crowd mentality until I figured out what it was that made it work naturally for people. Mm-hmm. I still struggle with it, though. Well, I, I can see there's a lot of pain there. I mean, I, I don't know anyone who hasn't struggled through those years, but you had a lot of trauma going on at home. So in addition to having your dogs and cats and all the variety of animals that you talked about in your book, where else did you go for comfort when you, you didn't have really friends at school that you could laugh with? So what did you do in all that pain? Well, I did have one friend who lived next to us in the trailer park, and her parents had divorced around the time that um, mine had. So um, Kathy was a good friend. Hmm. in in times I, it's funny though that she didn't show up in my book so i'll have to think about that um, we're not we're not friends still really but one hmm. thing that i know was my quote unquote salvation was music i mean music hmm. was the language that spoke to the deep places in my heart that i didn't even know were there hmm. and i just loved um mostly the radio I, I, or whatever was playing whatever my dad had or whatever was playing around the house or in school, I was in choir and band and marching mm. band and all mm. the musicals I could audition for mm. and all the talent shows. Yeah. 
That was I, your escape. Definitely my escape. Mm-hmm. And just it filled a place in me that gave purpose to my life. So you were brave enough during that era of music that I love, the 70s, you were brave enough to actually listen to the melancholy sad songs. <laughs> and I just would fast forward right through them. Oh. I would pick up the needle and go to the next happy song. So do you remember what sad song really ministered to you? Or which one did you memorize and say, this is my song? Wow, that's a great question. Well, I loved listening to Linda Ronstadt, and she did not write her own music. So mm. a lot of what I was relating to were songs written by people like, I don't know, Carla Bonoff, Elvis Costello, hmm. J.D. Souther. Yeah. Those kind of aching songs that Achy. they oh. came up with. <laughs> and that Linda uh, translated so beautifully with her voice. Mm-hmm. I love Joni Mitchell, too, her writing and singing so honest and raw. A lot of stuff I could relate to. And Janice Ian. Mm. Janice Ian, I mean, you know her big song, 17, at 17. 17, yeah. That cut Rip right. your heart out. <laughs> the I heart. Know. Yeah. Amazing how a song can do that. So something about the sad songs and the ballads drew me, and I think it was because they expressed something more mature, obviously, than I could express or even experience, but also something deeper than I could even, in my mind, come up with. Just, Mm. it was beyond words, which is, of course, what music is anyway. It's so true. There's a song called Asia by Steely Dan Mm -hmm. that kills me. It's my favorite song. And I think it's about drugs. (laughs) (laughs) Scott's tried to explain. He said he thinks that, you know, whatever Asia is, is probably about drugs. But there's something about that. There's the... The coalescing of the chords mm. and the melody and the rhythm. Kind of dark and, and moody. Yeah, just, mm. it's, more, it's my favorite song. Really? Yeah. And the lyrics make no sense. Isn't that funny? Yeah. So many of the Beatles songs are like that for me. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was so neat that you mentioned in your book that um, you acknowledge that your dad is where you got your gift or your love for music. Even though your dad also represented a lot of the pain in your story, you were able to attribute that to him. That was that seems so redemptive and evident evidence of your healing. Yes, you I, I think you're right. So tell can you tell us about your dad? It's funny. I still have dreams about my dad, and really? he's been gone for almost thirty years. Mm. But he. Uh, he was an alcoholic, but he wasn't alcoholic when my parents first got married. Mm. He was, he, I don't know, he had to have been incredibly selfish. Mm. And he he would just leave my mom home at night and go hang out with friends and go play pool in the bars. And he eventually learned that if he had a beer, you know, in the bar, he, it would loosen him up and he could play pool better and enjoy the people better. And mm. But because of alcoholism, I think, in our family and the way it grabbed um, him, he quickly became he was just drinking all the time and so that that made worse an already bad relationship and situation because by then I think mom had all three of us kids my older sister a year older than me than I am and um, my younger brother who's three years younger than I am so 
But anyway, um, the dreams I have about him are kind of the adult me getting to have conversations and Aww. and yell at him and ask him to stop smoking cigarettes. Wow. Oh. I, I do feel like dreams are, are a great way to... I think God uses it for me to, to do some work, some healing work. That is beautiful. But for me to say that my inheritance is not just the negative parts. Yeah. And to go, well, he named me. My dad named me Christine. I know. I love that name. And he always had a, a respect for God. He just didn't have a, a sense of God's grace. He just had a sense of God's laws, strangely mm-hmm. enough. Um, if some of your listeners are older, they'll have heard about the Blaine Truth magazine or the Herbert W. Armstrong Worldwide Church of God, which is what my dad kind of adhered to, but he never really practiced it. Mm. So it was very legalistic. We didn't eat any kind of shellfish or pork or uh, pork and that kind of thing. We weren't celebrating Christmas, pagan. Even Easter. Even Easter. Amazing. It was a pagan holiday. Wow. Strangely enough. But my dad, and he said we were supposed to go to church on Saturdays, but we didn't go at all, so... He was too busy drinking. (laughs) But anyway, he had a strong respect for God, and I think he really wanted to be a good person. Yeah. But he could never figure out how to do it. And I love that he named you Christine, which means Messiah? Or Christ follower, or yeah. Um, I remember when I first started really getting to know you, and we started going to meetings together, which I didn't even know what a meeting was. You were the one who introduced me, but um, are you okay if we talk about that? Oh, sure. But um, I remember when I first started getting to know you, I refused to call you Chris because you were such a Christine. You were all heart. And now to hear you talk about your dad so fondly, and even through those pages in your book, the love that you have for him just came right through. Oh, Even though he was... I loved your term, which captured it, I think, beautifully. An emotional sniper. Yes. Can you tell us what, what you meant by that? Well, there in the book I tell this one night when he came home, and at this point the song, the big song on the radio was Funky Town. I remember, <laughs> Do you remember the song? that song. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry if that makes you start singing that song in your head <laughs> and can't get it out. But we heard it for hours and hours every night, probably oh, 2 in the morning, he would come home and just to put that on at top volume oh. for a week. And I don't know why it took my mom a week to finally smash the record, but... Wow. So I know part of the music for him was like it was for me. It, it was an escape. It was mm. it, whatever he whatever healing he needed. Um, but it was his also his way of, of attacking us and mm. trying to wake us up and say, mm. if I'm going to be <laughs> in pain, you are too. Yeah. That's what it sounded like. Misery loves company. Yeah. I want you. And that famous quote that I'm not sure who to attribute it to, but pain that is not transformed is transmitted. Mm. So he he never transformed his own pain, so he transmitted it to us. Yeah, he passed it all on. How did you come to a place of forgiveness? Because you have to, in order to love someone this much and having such sweet dreams about him, you had to have forgiven him. Well, I know I have in in recent years, but it took me a long time to know that I had to forgive him, that I had anger. I 
was telling you earlier that I consider it a curse that I can't talk without my <laughs> throat <laughs> seizing up and tears running down. So I, I didn't know that I didn't have a normal or okay childhood until I went to college and would tell friends. Well, first of all, I was waving my banner to my friends of, oh, I was um, I was a cheerleader, I was popular, I was homecoming queen, I was on the uh, honor roll and student of the month and wow, all these achievements of mine that thankfully were there because high school was when I could, you know, find my strength in, in school and all these things I was involved in, which was great. Mm-hmm. But it was also a false me mm. as I was slowly discovering when I went to college and shimmering self, my shimmering self. Yeah. Well, my shimmering self was hidden. This oh. was, this was more the, the, the shiny outward. false self that was saying, this is what, who I am. I am, um, I'm smart. I'm pretty. I'm popular and I'm confident and nothing's wrong. Mm. And then when, um, some Christian friends began to question certain things. Like there was this one pot smoker that called me Sister Christian, and I thought that was an honor. But it was really oh. a way. It took me a long time to figure this out. I, maybe someone pointed it out to me. Like Scott, you know, basically you look like a you're trying to personify something. Mm. I think is what the message was but I took it as oh good they see me reading my bible oh it was mocking <laughs> I think it was maybe it wasn't but it be it became another thing that I thought I was earning oh wow and I had to learn that it wasn't about the outside stuff the doing that was who I was mm. or who who God was to me mm. it, um and so as people began to question my resume so to speak I was shocked And then people began to question the stories, especially Scott, the the family stories of, ha ha, isn't it funny? Dad came home and smashed the Christmas tree that we had snuck in, and it was funny that Dad came home and smashed all my mom's plants, and and that he took the tires off of one of my sister's boyfriend's car when he was (gasps) over for the night, and that he, you know, wow, many 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 things that he had done that were not funny. But the family tale growing up had to be maintained that we're fine. Took a lot of work. It took a lot of work. (laughs) But that's how you survive. That's how a Mm. lot of people survive Mm. situations that don't seem to have an escape. Mm. Anyway, we did escape when we were probably. I was 15 and Ginny was 16 when we finally fled the house for the Mm. final time. My mom, Mm. uh, after she had divorced and we had moved back in with my dad and then the Christmas tree and the plants against the wall incident was the final incident. Mm. However, after that, he still was the emotional sniper of showing up in the middle of the night where the new place we were living and terrorizing Mm. with, you know, breaking in the door or uh, taking things out of my mom's car so she couldn't get to work, you know, messing with her engine. (laughs) No. Yeah. One night he showed up bald. He had shaved his head. He shocked us all and was telling us he was going to kill himself. So wow, he was occasionally physically violent, but mostly it was this emotional violence and roller coaster that was messing with our heads. Yeah, like emotional <laughs> terrorism. Yeah. And so to survive, I and probably my siblings had to figure out how to be normal. Mm. And school was great for that, school activities and just laughing 
And animals. And my animals. Yeah. And growing up. Thank God for growing up. I went to college, <gasps> studied music. And uh, go back to when you were in college, you had friends who were honest with you and mirrored back to you. Okay, this is not normal. Yes. This is not funny. And so you were finally able to come to terms with your anger. I imagine sadness and grief and. Yeah, I think the anger is still coming out. That Mm. that wasn't the first thing that came out. I think the grief and the. Oh, Oh, gosh. Mm. It sounds like I haven't done my work. (laughs) No, but I've done, this is evidence that you have. I've done a lot of work around this. I know. So the term denial is kind of the trendy term, and I was totally in denial. <laughs> and I, mm. I'm so thankful for the friends that challenged me and said, well, maybe it's not so great that you look like you have it all together, or maybe you don't need to do all the things perfectly or look great. Or, wow. It's a good thing. So it probably didn't feel freeing right at first. Oh, no. (laughs) It's probably like, what are you talking about? I was shocked. I was so mad. Like, aren't you my friends? Mm. But um, when Scott and I met, 1985, I was um, still in a bad habit, which I had started when I was a senior in high school, which was throwing up, um, Mm. binging and purging kind Mm. of thing. And it hadn't reached a really bad level as far as I know, but I knew it I it took me a while to figure out that this is not just my way of trying to stay thin. Ah. It's definitely my way of trying to control things and deal with the, the inner parts of me that hadn't been healed wow. or even looked at. Um so I the first person I confessed to was Scott and mm. it was funny, he tells he reminds me that I came to him after we had been seeing each other for a few weeks and I said I got to tell you something. Wow. He said, "Oh no!" He thought I was I was done, like breaking up I with was him. Breaking up with him. Aww. And then when I told him about the bulimia, he had no idea what I was talking about. He never heard of that. But Nobody was, was talking about it then. Yeah, and he was so sweet and just said, "Okay, what can I do?" And Aww. I said, I, "I think I need to be accountable, and you need to ask me." Oh, that's mm. the worst asking somebody to ask <laughs> you. You must have really trusted him. I really did. And that was the beginning of the end of that. You know, I, wow. did, I didn't end up going to counseling or anything for that. That's amazing. It is. Because so just confessing to him, mm-hmm. you saw it lose its power. It lost its power. That's crazy. Yeah. I think and even then you realized that it was deeper than an eating I don't, issue? I don't think so. Oh. I don't think so. But who knows? I can't remember much. I'm not, I don't have a very good memory. I have to have... Like mental cues. Yeah. Like if people ask me, how was your week? I, I have to open up my calendar and look at it and say, that oh, was great. I went to this and I talked to the, you know, but I can't yeah. remember. Yeah. In just I get that. Blank. <laughs> so I don't remember exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. But I do know that it was very relieving to wow. not be the only one carrying the burden. Mm-hmm. And of course, that was the beginning of Scott carrying many of my burdens. <laughs> so sweet. So he would ask you from time to time, how's it going? Yeah. And that helped you. Yeah, and knowing that he was going to ask me was enough for me to say, I'm not going to do this. Aww. You know, and, and also just having his, his, him in my life was a great relationship, very healing relationship. Did you find it hard to trust a man after growing up with your dad? It's funny. I don't have that kind of set of uh, 
symptoms. Wow. Mine was I have a, I'm, have a harder time having relationships with women. Interesting. Because from childhood, it was always difficult for me to hang out with girls. And I think that might just be a nature mm. kind of thing, not necessarily nurture. Mm. But I also had... I was, it was very easy for me to have boyfriends, and, and I thought all the friends that were my guys were just my friends, but you can't really have guy friends yeah, that some eventually don't love, love you. you. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I but I, I was drawn to the male conversations mm. and being male outdoors. Relationships, and maybe it was the You were always outdoors. athletic. Yeah. Yeah. So, finally, after so many boyfriends or guys that had fallen in love with me that I had no idea <laughs> that they were in love with me until it was, you know, too late. No. I, uh, Scott, and always, Scott and I always say we saved each other. Aww. In fact, our song, So We Never Got to Paris. Yes. Uh, young lovers without much save each other. Isn't that mm. enough? <laughs> and uh, we started out <laughs> very broken people uh, mm. together. Mm. And sometimes that works. And so far it's worked 30 years now. 30 years. Yes. <laughs> now the question is where do we go from here? This cup filled up so quickly There's too much on our plate Between the living and the dying Something's must wait So we never got to Paris There was a phrase that you wrote uh, towards the end of your book about Rewards of Next Generation Grace. So I wonder if you might have a recent redemption story. Well, two things come to mind. Um, if pain that's not transformed is transmitted, mm-hmm. I think the opposite can be true as well. That when we transform the pain, when we do our work mm-hmm. in our own lives, mm-hmm. then we don't transmit it to our children. Instead, mm-hmm. we can transmit grace and mercy. And... Um, just having conversations with Karina, for example, my 22-year-old, her, her way of living, mm. Karina's way of living is so graceful. Wow. And she, she's a, she works for a social work agency. She works for a foster care agency here in town in Nashville. Mm-hmm. And she loves these kids. It's great. She doesn't even know her impact mm. when she's driving in the car with these kids that have been disrupted from their families mm. and have to be moved to a foster family. Mm-hmm. That her gift of a song or a game in the car oh. or a conversation while they're waiting for, you know, in the therapist's office or wherever she has to take them. Wow. Or holding hands in the back seat while someone else is driving with this child. Mm. Beyond measure. Her impact is beyond measure. And it's because, it's partly because God has transformed my pain. Let her be. Yeah. This is the part that makes me so mad. (laughs) It's okay. You better edit this all out. God has transformed my pain and allowed me to love my daughter. And my daughter has learned to love in a way that is beyond her. Wow. And that's so redemptive. So redemptive. Awesome answer. And another thing about redemption, and you can edit this out if it's too much. No. Another thing I'm learning is, this This is my big word of the century, no, the last five years, the word is acceptance. Mm. And so for an Enneagram one, it's very difficult to accept the world as it is. 
I want to change it. I want to fix it. I want to reform. And I want to teach people how to be better. And, and obviously, this is quite obnoxious and an unhealthy one. <laughs> so I'm trying to be a healthy one and accept the fact that, first of all, there are some things about myself that may never change the way I, I may never be perfect. <gasps> Horrors. <laughs> and... Also, the people that I love and that love me may actually they never be perfect. Wow. And no matter how much you try to No matter how them. much I try or, you know, try to patiently wait for them. <laughs> and so to accept that about myself, to accept that about my family, to accept that about my friends and acquaintances and even the person that's driving so badly in front of me <laughs> is to free myself. Because yes. truly the anger I feel for that bad driver does not transform anyone but me and it ain't pretty (laughs) and so to accept even those annoyances of life that aren't perfect where people don't drive perfectly like I do (laughs) is to find a new kind of freedom and redemption in my own life so great so tell me on a in a practical sense how did you come to be more accepting of imperfections uh, well, how does that happen? Some of it's the serenity prayer. Mm. If people are familiar with that, that's kind of the recovery uh, movement's favorite prayer. Mm-hmm. It's only a sec- segment of it is known, but it's the idea that God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. I cannot change. Um, the courage to change, change the, the things, things I, can, I can, and the wisdom, and the wisdom to, to know the difference. difference. And so. You know, sure, that's easy to say, but to really believe that and to ask that every day, you know, help me to accept the things I can't change. Yeah. And the things, hopefully, I'm being transformed internally when I ask the Lord for that grace of acceptance. It's slow with me. Mm. My changes are really slow. I'm like a butterfly inside the chrysalis, you know. It's like, help, get her out, get her out. No, it's going to be slow for me. It looks painful, and yes, it is. But when I come out, it'll be good. Oh, It's already so good. There's, there's one thing that I do that might free some people up. Yeah. So I have, you know, I've talked about my lists, and that's how I kind of keep track of my life because I can't let all the things that I want to do and need to do swirl around in my head. Mm. It's got to be written down somewhere. Well, I, on my list, I have a list of what my lists are. So I'm like, <laughs> wait, what? I have my to-do list, so that's at the top. But oh, then, that's awesome. Uh, but then below that, my other list is to do soon. And then oh. there's the someday list. And oh. then there's a list of movies that I write down because people tell me things I need to watch, but I'll forget. So I write a list of movies that someday I might watch. So do you have this like on a, a, in a special notebook? It's or on my computer. on your phone? It's oh. on my computer. It's, a, it's called Workflowy. It's an app. And it just keeps going. Yes, but the, there's another list I have. It's called Friends. Oh, what it's is a, that? It's a list of people to remind me who my friends are. And wow, that sounds bad to me, but oh. I also know it's a really good tool. And so, no, if I you're like it. me, I have to write down, give Blair four hugs today. Yes, that kind of thing. That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or if I if I 
you know, I do, I spend a lot of time alone and in my head mm. and I like it that way, mm-hmm. but that can also be unhealthy. And mm. so sometimes I'll look on my list and go, oh yeah, Carthy's my friend. I should call her. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I love this so much. Oh, Tammy, I got to text Tammy. I haven't talked to her in a while. You know, so it's a prompt. It's a list. It's a prompt. It's so a reminder. And I think good. it's okay for people like me that have some sort of deficit. <laughs> that it's not natural. It's not natural. And you're so. cultivating it. You're putting it in there. Yeah. That's great. I love that you're so candid about that and real about remind myself to remind myself. love that. Remind myself to remind myself about my friends. Well, I promised you that I would um, give you some tips. And first of all, I'm going to say, I really want you to pray about friendships. I'm not kidding. Pray for discernment. Lord, lead me. And then I want you to, I want to challenge you to join a club or a class and be on the lookout for somebody that God puts in your path. Pay attention Okay, that might mean taking off your headphones for a couple of hours, but I promise you will live. Then I want to encourage you to ask this person that you feel drawn to, ask them to go do something. Face-to-face might feel a little intimidating, whereas a side-by-side activity is just easier. So maybe go to a brush-and-sip type place, you know, where they have like a painting class, and then you go and bring your own bottle of wine. Taking a walk is also a good first step because walking and talking is one of my favorite ways to get to know somebody. Christine and I have taken walks together, and Steph and I took a lot of walks together in the beginning. We still do 20 years later. And after a couple of walks or art classes or whatever activities you decide on, if you feel like... um, If you do feel like there's a good connection between you and this other friend, and this would be a good friendship for you to cultivate and maybe go deeper, then um, it sounds like we're talking about a dating relationship, doesn't it? And it is a little bit like that. But when you get to this point, maybe consider asking the other person if they want to be intentional about being friends. Like, sort of a DTR talk. That's what we used to call it back in the day. DTR stands for define the relationship. <laughs> we used to do, we used to do that with people we dated. But um some people might think, you know, if you bring that up, that's crazy. But then one person might think, "Oh, that's really cool." You never know. So don't not do something because of fear of another person's reaction. Really, that can be a clear indication whether it's something worth pursuing or not. I would say that the woman who appreciates you communicating that vulnerably and reciprocates that um, that kind of interest in a real friendship beyond conversations about work or where to get your hair done or where to get those curtains, I would say that's a good indication. That's a girl worth pursuing. 
A friend of mine says she doesn't even have to have that much in common with the other person to be deliberate in pursuing a friendship with her. She says that she's been texting a fellow mom in her town based on the sheer fact that their two sons don't fight when they get together for playdates, and the moms are just baffled by this. The kids get along. The moms get along. She's like, what more do I need? Boom. There's my new friend. Another tip I got from this same person is if you're an introvert, have an extrovert match you up with somebody who lives close to where you are and or has something in common with you like kids or um, a common interest or a job. I read a couple of blog posts prayerfully on how to make friends and it was it was kind of sad. The suggestions were all like, don't be picky about your friendships. Just say yes whenever you get invited to something. Or, you know, basically just put yourself out there. Get out there more. Oh, it just sounded like a lot of work, especially for an introvert. And this one, up your numbers, which I got to say, it's the philosophy of somebody I really respect. Dr. Henry Cloud said that. And I love everything he writes about. And I told you we're studying his book, Boundaries, this summer that he wrote with John Townsend. I have great respect for this man. And while he's talking more in terms of dating here about upping your numbers, I just can't wrap my brain around this way of thinking. His idea, I, I, it just feels, I don't know, a little cheap, maybe. I'm sorry, I'm not trying to sound critical, but it bothers me because it seems a little bit invalidating. Let me explain that. I know quite a few women who put themselves out there consistently and they don't get asked whether we're talking about um, by a guy for a date or by a girl for friendship purposes. It's just not that easy. It's just not that simple. So while some pieces of that philosophy might be helpful, some of it just seems, I don't know, depressing and maybe a little defeating to me. You just have to pray for discernment about some of these approaches and choose the ones that feel, you know, right to you, you feel drawn to. And what's my philosophy? Hmm, glad you asked. Well, it's just like in dating, I would say, do be picky. And while some people might tell you to accept every invitation, I'm telling you, I'm not so sure about that. I'm not saying be so picky that you're setting impossible standards for yourself, but just like it's bad advice to tell your teenage daughter to go out with any boy who's kind enough to ask her out, you got to leave a little room for discretion here. You know what I mean? Pray for wisdom in that. If you're already active in a club or a class or a church or Bible study, um, if you're already out and about, again, pray for leading, that the Holy Spirit would draw you to a person who resembles your Savior and who might just sharpen you a little bit. I prayed for a long time, Lord, lead me to a friend who will point me to you. And then I would just challenge you to reach out to him you know, just try it. I hope you're feeling inspired to pursue a couple of real friendships. I'll pray that it goes well for you because seriously, love, it's not good to be alone. Where do I get this? Well, God. God says it in Genesis right before he created Eve. I know we pride ourselves on being independent and self-sufficient, but think about this. Even God isn't alone. 
He's the Holy Trinity. He wired us to need community, but we fight it with everything, don't we? I'm here to tell you, implore you, quit fighting it. Okay, now I need to make a couple of little corrections or updates about、um, a couple of things that I said in the interview. Um, I had told Christine that American women were, ra- were ranked the loneliest in the world. Well, since the recording of this interview, I read that we are now fifth in the world. It's still so sad, isn't it? It's hard to believe with all the access we have to each other, but we're just not, we're just not moving towards people like we need to. Something else I want to update you on. Christine and I both agreed at the time that I'm a two on the Enneagram. And while I think that was an accurate assessment at the time, I'd have to change that to a four now. After doing the Enneagram study with some friends, I have a little bit more grasp on the system. And I understand that two is where I go when I'm feeling insecure or not grounded in my fourness. That's typically where a four goes in crisis or at her weakest, worst moment. Not that all twos are unhealthy, because a healthy two, oh my gosh, the world needs those. In case you're not familiar with any of these numbers, four is the individualist creative type, and two is the number for helpers and servants. And Jesus is reflected in some way in each of the numbers. There's beauty and strength in each of them, so none of them are bad. But in case you're not familiar with these numbers, All this talk about the Enneagram makes me think it's time to have a specialist on here to tell us about it. Maybe two specialists. So next week, come back for a detailed breakdown of the Enneagram. Johanna Powell is a counselor friend of mine who uses Enneagram to help individuals and families in our community. And Beth McCord is the one who wrote the workbook that we studied last fall, and she's going to be here too. That's next week on episode 72. So come back for that. Then we will break for summer. I so appreciate your prayers. My Lyme treatments are going to start the first week in June, and I'm hoping for really good results and minimal side effects. So join me in that prayer. Also, I have to give a shout out to those of you who sent in games for our team to take to India. You took the time to gather these little toys and ship them to me, even though you knew, even after you found out that I couldn't go on our trip. Our team is going to be so happy to carry your games and toys to these children in Maharashtra. It's so thoughtful of you. And in a way, you're going to be there in spirit with them. And I will too. So continue to pray for our India team. They're leaving in August without me and Davey. But hopefully, I'll be well enough to go on the next trip. Thanks again for joining me. Till next time. Bye, love. My thanks to the heroic, handsome, most talented rock star, keyboard player, producer, engineer extraordinaire, and my best friend, Blair Masters, for setting it all to music. And thank you for joining us. Come on back, and we'll talk more about how you can find your happy by living life more connected. Music element? Absolutely. Okay, so、yeah. you could say, I don't know, chicks in. Prettier half. Better half. <laughs> of-
That's great. Whatever you want. The better half. I like it. <laughs>